Hi, I'm Alex Mason, host of Stock Stories. This is the podcast where we decode investing principles by analyzing the business behind the stock, as well as learning about mental models in order to help you become a better investor. You ready? Let's go. Right. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the show. My name is Alex Mason and I am your host. This is the Stock Stories podcast, the podcast where we decode companies and mental models. We're back at it with another company. I'm so excited. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the episode last week. Actually, we had a double feature last week. I think it was so awesome. We talked about a mental model multiplying by zero. And then on Friday, I released a bonus episode talking about the eight mistakes of beginner investors. It was a really fun episode to put together. So if you haven't checked that one out, I definitely recommend it. So today, though, we are going to get right back into the companies. Remember, one of the purposes of the show, one of my big goals, which I've been working toward for years and best believe I will not stop until I've accomplished it, is to analyze and produce an episode for every single S&P 500 company. That's right. Every single company in S&P 500 is going to make it into this show if it hasn't already. And not to mention that since this is you know a multi-year project, companies change. The index changes. And sometimes companies drop out. Sometimes new companies come in. And I'm going to be all over all of that. So thank you for joining me along this journey. And I'm just excited to bring another company to you here today. This company is in a sector we haven't talked about in a while. It's in the auto sector. I think the last auto-related company we talked about was probably Copart. And that was was pretty cool. I, I really like studying that company. Um But we're going to go and talk about one of the old school large auto manufacturers. Now, if you remember, we talked about Ford way, 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 way back. (laughs) I guess it was two years ago now. And we're going to talk about Ford's biggest competitor. You ready? All right. Today, we're going to talk about General Motors. All right, so today we're going to talk about General Motors, ticker symbol GM. So the way that I usually like to structure these episodes is kind of in a chronological fashion. So at first, we'll talk about the history of the company, then we'll move toward the business overview, kind of what the company is doing today, and then we'll look toward the future. So that's the structure for this episode, and then of course we'll end with some closing thoughts. So first, let's talk about the history of General Motors. So our story today starts in 1880s Flint, Michigan. Now at the time, there was a young man, his name was Will Durant, and he worked as a cigar salesman. So 
1886, he partnered with a friend of his named Josiah Dort, and they founded what became the Durant Dort Carriage Company. So remember, at this time in America, there weren't really automobiles. There weren't really cars. It was horses and carriages, literally. A carriage with a horse drawing the carriage. And that's how people got around. And so that was the old school car back in the day. And Josiah Dort and Will Durant, they created this company. And they got really good at making horse-drawn carriages. They became known as actually the premier carriage manufacturer in the area, and they eventually turned that company into a business making over $2 million in sales by the turn of the century. So they really grew this thing. Now think about $2 million. That's a lot of money today, right? Well, think about how much money that was in 1900. That was many, many millions of dollars worth of money in today's terms. So they were really doing well in the carriage business. So cars did exist at this time in America. I shouldn't have said they didn't exist. They did exist, but they were really few and far between. They weren't being used by everyday people like you and me. And also, they were pretty unreliable contraptions at this time. They were not known for being very safe. So Durant, he was very skeptical, and it's been written that he wouldn't even let his daughter ride in these new horseless carriages because he was worried about their unreliability and the safety hazards. So these newfangled machines were just not really trusted by people. So for a time, he pretty much bet against the automobile by expanding his carriage business. Now eventually, Durant came across a local car company called Buick. And Buick, unfortunately, wasn't doing very well. They had a lot of debt. They weren't making very many sales at this time. So in the year 1904, Will Durant took a test drive and he began to reason that these new automobiles actually had a lot of potential if they were sold well and could be made reliably. So he decided that, you know what, there's actually something to this car thing. They just need to be made more reliably, and maybe with some salesmanship, I can actually sell these things. So he ended up taking over Buick, and in 1905, there was this big auto show. He put the car in the auto show, and because he was such a good salesman, he received orders for over a 1,000 cars. He was in business, and then over the next four years, he outsold all of the other local brands, including the local competitor, Henry Ford. So he started selling these Buick cars. Now, in 1908, a few years later, he decided that in order to be a leader in this new car industry, he'd have to differentiate himself from Ford a little bit. Um, So he decided to create a holding company called General Motors. Now, at the time, Ford, he was really just selling the Model T and maybe one or two other models, and that was it. He was really focused on just making everything super efficient with this single model and making it as affordable to the common person as possible. Ford was incredibly focused on that. Now, Durant, he wanted to take a different approach. He wanted to consolidate different car manufacturers together to have these different brands. So he created General Motors as a holding company and ended up putting in 13 different car brands and 10 different auto parts manufacturers into this holding company. So right from the beginning, GM was a conglomerate. 
GM was this business that had all these different car companies underneath it. So he reasoned that people didn't want the same thing. (laughs) Different people wanted different things according to their incomes and according to the personal style. So he was thinking about this and he bought brands such as Cadillac, Carter Car, Elmore, and many other brands, many of which have faded away over time, but Cadillac is one of the brands that he bought that has endured to this day. Now, Durant was zealous in his desire to completely dominate the industry, and so he decided that really his biggest competitor was Ford, and why not try to just take over Ford? So he attempted to acquire Ford, and he went over and he made an offer, and the offer was for $8 million, which was a substantial sum, especially back in those days. Unfortunately for Durant, the deal ended up falling through. And that upset Durant's creditors. It really made them upset. The company had acquired so much debt on its balance sheet due to its acquisitions that the failed deal with Ford, that was pretty much the last straw for the banks and the board of directors. So they ended up deciding to vote Durant out of the company and he was fired. But Durant's story with GM doesn't end there. In 1911, a few years later, He ended up starting a company that you might have heard of called Chevrolet. And that was started with a Swiss race car driver named Louis Chevrolet. So in time, Chevrolet became a thriving brand all by itself and eventually had enough power that Durant shrewdly used his Chevrolet stock to acquire General Motors stock. Now, in time, he acquired a controlling interest in both companies, and then GM ended up consolidating Chevrolet in 1918. So Durant got his power back, but reportedly he started getting distracted. He started kind of gambling on Wall Street, and he just kind of became an out-of-touch executive, but he was still in charge. Now, in the meantime, other leaders were on the come-up within General Motors' ranks, and Durant was eventually kicked out of his own company yet again after four years in the driver's seat. And Durant didn't give up. He actually kept going. He started a new company called Durant Motors, and he ended up enjoying some limited success, but he eventually lost market share because his sales just weren't high enough. He didn't have the same success that he had with his prior ventures. And My theory is that by this time, GM and Ford's competitive advantages of size were too great at this point. It was really hard for Durant by himself to really compete in a big way. And then also the Great Depression happened and he was not in a great position. The Great Depression ruined Durant. He ended up declaring bankruptcy in 1936. And um, that's kind of where his story ends in this larger story of General Motors. But his baby, GM, it continued to grow. So throughout the late 1910s and then early 1920s, GM, they continued to acquire more car companies. Their their process of growth was definitely via acquisition, especially early on, and they expanded their workforce. And they went so far as to provide employees with housing. They created actually an early version of a 401k where the company matched dollars that the employees invested in. So I think that was pretty cool that GM was pretty forward thinking as far as taking care of their employees from an early on um, perspective or point in their history. Now, later on in the decade, 1919, GM 
created a financial product that changed the auto buying process forever. This is called the car loan. <laughs> the General Motors Acceptance Corporation, or GMAC for short, was born. Now, Henry Ford was absolutely opposed to people purchasing his cars on credit because he had some moral reasons for doing so. He felt like he wouldn't be on the moral high ground if he let people borrow money to buy his cars. That was his thinking. Now, GM saw this and said, well, people want to buy cars and we'll give them credit to do that. Why not? So they decided people wanted to pay as little as possible at a time to buy new vehicles. So they were the first car company ever to allow for monthly payments. Now think about that. This was an entirely new concept. You just couldn't go out and buy a car on credit back in those days. But General Motors decided that this was going to be critical for their strategy in taking market share from Ford and expanding their offerings. So Durant was replaced, and he was replaced by a man named Alfred Sloan. Now, Sloan was a powerful manager, and he executed these ideas that ended up changing the auto industry forever. Now, easy monthly payments was one of those ideas. Another was the idea of the ladder of success, as Sloan called it, the ladder of success. Now, each brand of car it had a specific socioeconomic and demographic target that it was created for. Now, Sloan wanted customers not just for a one-time purchase, but he wanted them for life. He wanted people to be buying General Motors cars from young adulthood into older adulthood and from the price-conscious consumer to the luxury-seeking one. Now, this quote-unquote ladder, it progressed from Chevrolet to Pontiac to Oldsmobile, to Buick, and then to Cadillac. Each brand was designed not to compete with the other brands, but to be tailored to a particular consumer. So there is this brand awareness that was being created by General Motors. Another idea that Sloan introduced that became pretty revolutionary was annual styling changes for the models of cars. And this is known today as planned obsolescence. That's called planned obsolescence. And the basic idea is this. So instead of making the same car year after year, the company decided that they could influence the psychology of consumers to buy cars more often if every year the car was upgraded in some way. Now, even if these upgrades weren't that big, maybe they were small upgrades, or maybe they didn't even cost that much, it signaled to people that anything made before the new model was considered old and therefore not as desirable, right? I mean, hey, give me the 2021 model. Don't give me the 2020 model. That's old news. Give me the 2021 model. Hook me up with that. So that whole idea was pioneered by General Motors around this time. And it was incredibly effective. It allowed GM to sell more cars to more people more frequently. And this is an example of a mental model. You know, on the show, we love to talk about mental models all the time. They, they drive decision-making, and they're so powerful. There's a mental model called the availability heuristic. And part of that is that the more frequent something is in our minds, the more recent something is in our minds, the more new it seems, the more that we remember it. 
not necessarily the most important things or the things that we care most about. We remember things because they're frequent and because they're recent in our memory. Now, by upgrading this model every single year and advertising it heavily, it was putting this image in consumers' minds of, hey, look, here's a new car. It's a new version. Come and get it. It won't be here forever. And then the next year they would repeat over and over and over. So cars no longer became this functional way to get from point A to point B, which was really the core of Henry Ford's vision. Cars had become fashion. Cars became a fashion item. And that was a big part of how GM ended up succeeding. Now, as you might expect, as time went on, World War II happened and General Motors played a really big role. They produced vehicles and related equipment for the armed forces and and helped out the U.S. government and allies in a big way there. And then over the years, GM kept expanding. They expanded geographically with operations outside of the United States and as well with product offerings. They created new models of cars. They did a lot of different things. Now, throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, GM continued to dominate but they had a number of product issues that kind of harmed their reputation. They dealt with some struggles. Um, For example, in the early 1970s, there was a car called the Vega, and initially it was pretty popular, but it was just fraught with engineering mistakes, with safety issues. Uh, For example, it had a a tendency to rust over time. (laughs) So it just was kind of became this uh, terrible PR nightmare for General Motors. But GM had some some successes too. The Oldsmobile became pretty popular in the 1970s and 1980s. So that worked out well for them. So they kind of had this mixed bag of success and failure. But overall, I mean, they were one of the only games in town. It was them, they had Ford, and then there was Chrysler. Those Those were kind of the big car companies of this era. Now, in the 1980s, GM decided that they were going to start downsizing a little bit. They were going to focus on fewer product lines, improving their manufacturing processes, general corporate improvement type stuff. So they did those things. Now, in the 1990s, the nature of cars was changing. They moved into selling things like SUVs, which were really new at that time, and light trucks. And that was commensurate with the changing tastes of American consumers. People wanted different types of cars, so General Motors gave it to them. And then GM also dealt with other issues other than these engineering and safety issues that I was mentioning. They had pretty high debt loads. I mean, recessions kept happening and there were labor strikes, but they still managed to maintain dominance and produce a large number of cars under a variety of brand names. So they ended up continuing to be profitable and continue to be successful overall. Okay, now we get to 2008. So when 2008 happened, it was a recession, and it hit General Motors pretty hard. And they, along with Chrysler, ended up having to accept bailouts from their respective governments. So the United States government provided close to $20 billion in total financing to allow for General Motors to have working capital. And what that means when I'm, when I'm talking about working capital, I'm just talking about keeping the lights on. I'm talking about being able to keep the factories open to have cars coming off the assembly line because things were rough for General Motors during this time. And things got worse. In 2009, 
General Motors got kicked out of the Dow Jones index and they went through bankruptcy. They went through bankruptcy. That's pretty much the epitome of failure for a corporation is when you go through bankruptcy. You can't, you can't survive anymore. But the interesting thing about GM is they were so big and they were so important to the production of vehicles, particularly in the United States, that they ended up getting saved by the government. And the government ended up loaning them this money. Now, I want to point out that just because General Motors is still around today, that does not mean that the stockholders of the old General Motors ended up being okay into today, into 2020. No, the the stockholders of years past, they were wiped out. This was not, this is not a story. You remember the episode about American Airlines where I talked about how that airline went through a bankruptcy event, but shareholders ended up doing really well in the end by a unique set of circumstances. Well, General Motors, that was not the case. If you own stock in General Motors, you lost all of your money and you had to start over with that particular position. So that's just an example of of when things can go wrong um, as an investor. And when there are recessions, some companies survive and some companies don't. Some companies survive in name and operation, but you as an investor might not make it. And so that's just part of the risk of stock ownership. Um, Just remember that even large, popular companies with real products and services, they can still go bankrupt, especially if they're in cyclical industries, especially if they have high debt loads and don't have liquidity when crisis comes knocking. So just keep that in mind. So by 2010, General Motors had repaid their loans, uh, but the government actually owned 61% of the company through common and preferred stock. So it was a quasi-publicly-owned company at that point. Now, GM reorganized. They went public again, and they became publicly traded again in 2010. And eventually, they were able to repurchase all of their stock back from the government by 2013, becoming fully private. Now, GM shareholders were completely wiped out. As I mentioned, their shares traded on the pink sheets, and they were eventually canceled. So sad story there. But subsequently, GM, they began anew. They continued to produce cars, and they continued to produce cars across several brands. And recently, they made some moves toward autonomous driving. They acquired a company called Cruise, which is a company that's focused on self-driving technology, as well as a company called Strobe, a company focused on LiDAR technology. Now, LiDAR, just so you're aware if you're not already, LiDAR is a type of sensor that's shown significant promise for vehicle technology because of its ability to accurately distinguish between many moving objects. For example, it can distinguish, say, a tree that's in front of the car. It can distinguish the tree from the shadow of the tree. And so there, you can have more sophisticated algorithms as a result because you, you have higher fidelity data from, from which to draw from and make decisions from a driving perspective. So GM is focusing on those kinds of things. At least they say they are. <laughs> They're making acquisitions in that direction. So that's kind of where they've come from all the way in the beginning with this transition from horseless carriages to today. 
All right, so now let's transition to the business overview. So the current General Motors, they're still a huge car maker. They employ over 164,000 people. They're still massive. Now they're focused right now on electric car development, no doubt spurred by the rapid ascension of Tesla as a viable competitor. And in addition to that, GM has acquired many brands over the years, but they've also divested of many brands. They've gotten rid of a lot of the old stuff that they used to have. They become a simpler car company in a way. And now there's really only four brands. They're Chevrolet, GMC, Buick, and Cadillac. So those are their four brands. Now, one thing that's important to recognize about how this industry works is that GM does not sell cars to people. (laughs) They don't sell cars directly to individuals. The way that it works is with a dealership network. They sell cars wholesale to General Motors dealerships. And then the dealerships sell the cars to the people, to you and me. Now, GM also sells cars to the U.S. government for various reasons. Um, Now, as far as the dealership network, because that's really the most important part economically for this company, there are over 4,700 dealers in North America, and there's almost 8,000 in the rest of the world. So they have this pretty wide footprint of established dealerships. So that's kind of good to see, right? Because they're already established. They have this strong foothold. Um, It's this company that's over 100 years old that is still around. So they must be doing something right, right? Now, worldwide, though, competition has been increasing. Now, back when General Motors started, I mean, they were the only game in town. Them and Ford pretty much dominated. But now there are so many competitors that GM has been losing their market share worldwide. In 2017, they had about 10% of the global marketplace, but in 2019, this actually fell to 8.5%. So the auto industry, it's cutthroat, has a lot of competition, more than ever before, but some of the things that GM is doing to stay in the game, so to speak, is try to innovate with different types of concepts. For example, one of the recent innovations is the Chevy Bolt, which is an all-electric car, and it has about 250 miles of range. So not a ton of range, not enough to be convincing, frankly, for a lot of people, (laughs) not enough to be convincing for me personally, but I applaud the effort. I think that it's interesting, and I think that things are moving in a good direction here. So the Chevy Bolt is this all-electric car, but The real selling point is not the fact that it's electric, not the fact that it has like okay-ish range. The fact is it sells for less than $40,000. So contrast that with a company like Tesla, which sells cars for, you know, 70 grand, 80 grand and up, right? (laughs) So GM is really focused on this mass market opportunity. So we'll see if they can pull this off. The Bolt has only been out a couple of years. Um... I don't think it's been a huge game changer for them, but at the same time, they're trying new concepts. So that's that's worth noting. Now, GM also says that they're working on, quote, the largest collective electric vehicle charging network in the U.S., end quote. So they're trying to establish this infrastructure that, that really, I mean, they're trying to compete with Tesla. That's what they're doing. They also have this ride-sharing platform. It's called Maven. They work with companies like Uber and Grubhub. So they've got their hands in these different areas. And one of the other things that they're, that they're a part of is 
um, GM Financial. So they have this arm, financial arm called GM Financial. GMAC was actually sold off years ago, and that ended up becoming what is now Ally Bank. (laughs) So if you're familiar with Ally Bank, that originated with General Motors. Now, GM Financial, though, it's grown from a relatively small contributor of revenue to a larger one, which is something that I find interesting. I was looking at some data. In 2015, General Motors, about 4% of the revenue came from GM Financial back then. Now, in 2019, that was about 10% of revenue. So car loans are becoming a bigger and bigger share of how they actually drive revenue. And this makes me kind of nervous because, I mean, the reason GM failed in the first place is because of loans. Now, granted, it was because of like loans that they took out, but also people owed them loans and you just pile up too much debt on things and things can get messy real quickly. So (laughs) that's what kind of makes me nervous about that. All right. So now let's turn our attention to the financials. It's always important, I think, when looking at a company to at least look at the basic financials. What do the numbers actually look like? It's wonderful to learn about the history and and how the basic business model works, I think is very important as well. But what do the numbers say? The numbers tell a story too. So let's look at that. Now, for the sake of comparison, I'll be looking at the years 2013 and also 2019. Um, just to get some kind of a sense of the trends over the past several years. So first we look at sales. How much money is coming in the door? (laughs) So General Motors had $155 billion in sales in 2013. So this is a company that's selling a lot of cars. They are selling a lot of cars, no doubt about that. I mean, if you're going to sell $155 billion worth of goods, you are selling a lot. Now, in 2019, that number actually declined to $137 billion. $137 billion, still a massive number, but, man, that's a 2% annual decrease in sales. That, that's concerning, I would say, especially since the U.S. has undergone like pretty good economic times over that time period. Now, 2020, obviously a different story with the coronavirus But these numbers are spanning just 2013 to 2019, and sales went down. So what does that tell you? To me, that says the company is is struggling to find a way to grow the top line. That's what that's telling me. Now, what about profits, though? What about the income? How's the income growing? Now, the income, it looks better here. So in 2013, the company brought in just under $4 billion dollars in net income. In 2019, that number grew to about six and a half billion. So not a bad increase there. And as far as earnings per share, remember, it's not just about the income the corporation makes, but how much are you and I getting of that per share amounts? So $2.38, that was the profit per share in 2013, that grew to $4.57 by 2019. Now, that would imply that earnings grew by 11% annually over the past several years. But make no mistake, this is very misleading because the earnings of a company like this are just really cyclical. Auto manufacturers are notorious for having profits go up and then down and then up and then down again. That's just kind of what they do. And you'll see this if you go back and listen to the episode on Ford as well. It's the same way that Ford behaves. It's because when times are good, people love to buy new cars. 
when times are not so great, people will not buy new cars. They're kind of a high ticket item, even with the credit, even with easy credit, even with easy monthly payments, it's still a, a financial burden on people. So they're not going to buy new cars. They're going to they're gonna get a ride from their family member. They're going to drive a used car, whatever they have to do. So something to note there. Now let's move our attention to the balance sheets. So as far as the balance sheet goes, we're looking at assets and liabilities. Now we're just going to look briefly at the cash here. I always like to look at the cash position because when you have cash as a company, like you can do things. <laughs> you can invest in things. You can buy companies. You can buy back stock. You have a lot of options when you have cash. And when you have liquidity, you're protected from the downside more so than if you do not have cash. So something to keep in mind. Now in 2013, the company had $20 billion on its balance sheet. So pretty good amount of cash there. In 2019, they had 19 billion. So okay, several years passed, no change in the cash position. All right, whatever, moving on. What about long-term debt? How much debt does this company have? Well, in 2013, the company had about $22 billion in debt. And in 2019, 65 billion dollars. Damn. <laughs> so the debt tripled over a six-year period, um, and that I find that pretty concerning. Another thing about this company that we have to consider are the pension obligations. So many companies don't have that, especially newer companies. But remember, like the old-school kind of corporate uh, benefit system was based on pensions and pension benefits and pension obligations. So the company was obligated to take care of you by funding a pension. And so this is an asset for the worker, but it's a liability for the corporation and therefore a liability for you and I as potential investors in the stock. So in 2013, General Motors had $19 billion in pension liabilities. That number decreased to about $12 billion in 2019. So it, it decreased somewhat, but that's still a decent amount of liabilities lying on the balance sheet. That's not even considered debt. It's just another form of liability that has to be paid. So let's turn our attention now to the cash flow statement. So the cash flow statement, it's a little bit different from the income statement in that it's looking at the actual money flowing in and out of the business. And I really like that. I really like the fact that you and I can just publicly see the money going in and out of this company because it paints a picture of how the company's doing. Now, in 2013, the company made about $12.5 billion in operating cash flow. And in 2019, it was about $15 billion. So, okay, the company has been making some more money. Again, somewhat consistent with the earnings growth. Now, again, I want to point out it went up and down over that time, but still, we're looking at two snapshots in time for the sake of simplicity. Now, as far as investing cash flow, that what money is the company putting into the business? How are they investing in their own business? Well, they invested $14 billion into their business in 2013, $11 billion in 2019. Not much of a change there. Now, as far as financing cash flow, this is where the dividends come from, the share buybacks come from, this is where the debt gets borrowed or repaid. That's where we see this show up in the financing cash flow section of this cash flow statement. So there was $3.7 billion that they got in 2013, and then actually about $4.5 billion went out in 2019. In 2019, that was a little bit atypical because they paid extra on their existing debt. But in most years, what I saw in the financial statements is General Motors just keeps borrowing a little bit more. 
you know, borrowing a little bit more money, a little bit more money, a little bit more money, paying a little bit more in dividends, paying a little bit more in dividends. And speaking of dividends, the amount of money that they paid out in dividends has risen from just under $2 billion to a little bit over $2 billion over this time frame. So the amount of, that they've been paying in dividends has increased certainly over time, uh, but the dividends per share has actually been held constant for the past few years, which I think that's a good decision for management because, I mean, when your sales are falling, I mean, you got to conserve cash and make sure that you can you can live to fight another day, so to speak. Let's look also at the shares outstanding. So how many shares actually exist in General Motors? So the company had one and a half billion shares in 2013, and that decreased to 1.4 billion shares in 2019. So a slight decrease, not too much. So the share buybacks don't really have an impact here on the earnings per share at all. It's, it's pretty much flat. Another thing I want to look at financially with this business are the capital expenditures. With a business like General Motors, you're talking about a lot of things, a lot of physical equipment. You're talking about factories, machines, robots, uh, trucks, uh, all sorts of facilities that are needed just to make a single car. You, you just you need to build these things out. So the company ends up spending a lot of money on these capital expenditures. So they spent over $7 billion in 2013 and over $8.5 billion in 2019. So that number has definitely been increasing. This is a company that has to spend a lot of money just to keep the lights on. So that's something to consider. Now, they have been spending a lot and they've been making a lot, but the growth of how much they've been making over time, it hasn't been that good. I mean, they have highly cyclical earnings. Revenue has been slightly decreasing, but still, this is a behemoth. This is a huge company that's making in the hundreds of billions of dollars in sales. So that's something to consider too. Okay, now let's talk about some closing thoughts and a little bit about valuation. So General Motors, they've got a long storied history and that led them to becoming a behemoth in the auto world. And they're still quite large. They're still powerful. They still have brands that are desirable, at least in the United States. I think people consider them desirable for sure. And overall, the company is consistently profitable. One thing that concerns me, it seems that General Motors has this culture that is quick to take on excess debt. Even from the early 1900s, as we just learned, all the way up until recent years, GM loves debt. Even after the bailout in 2009, management decided to take on over $65 billion while pension obligations still linger. I mean, that's a lot of money. Now, in spite of this, management keeps paying the dividend and probably to appease Wall Street and to appease their short-term interests. Now, here we have a large old business that, frankly, it just seems like it has a lot of things working against it. I'm pretty concerned for GM shareholders, and here's why I'm concerned. So number one, you got stagnating sales. Sales aren't rising. That's a problem. You have stagnating earnings in an already pretty cyclical industry. (laughs) I mean, the last several years have been pretty good for many American companies, large American companies, as we've been showing and studying on this show. But for GM, they have been fluctuating a lot. Now, the market share is also deteriorating. They have an increasing debt load 
and they have significant pension obligations, not to mention recurring issues with unions. So General Electric, not General Electric, General Motors has been having problems. Well, General Electric has been having problems too. (laughs) If you listen to any of my episodes on General Electric as well, you, you know they've been having problems as well. But General Motors has definitely been having issues. Now, the way out that I see is for GM's management to create truly innovative products. If they can really innovate, like truly innovate, in a way that makes a difference and not just dress up a new version of last year's Cadillac, then I think they have a shot. I mean, the cars are pretty. They have certainly a certain appeal to them, but with so much competition in this sector, GM really has to stay on its toes. If they were prudent financially, it would be good. But even with that, it wouldn't be enough to excite me about the company's prospects. I I really don't see myself getting excited unless they just really have some kind of big growth driver to get them out of the slump. And I haven't seen that spark yet from everything that I've seen in my research of them. So the shares of GM right now, they're trading at around $40 each per share. And they've hovered around that range for several years, which I think is justified. Now, the PE ratio, I frankly, I'm not even really going to bring that up with this company because it's so... It's so hard to trust something like a PE ratio for a company where the earnings, they can wildly fluctuate up and down in any given year. But you can tell over the long term by the earnings growth, by the revenue growth, that this is a company that is a slow grower, that is a cyclical company for sure. Very cyclical. But here's what really bothers me. I just don't see how another bankruptcy couldn't happen for this company if conditions got really bad based on the balance sheet and the cyclical nature of their cash flow. I just think there's a lot of risks here based on the finances and the economic engine. The nature of the economic engine alone concerns me. Now, management, they've held their dividends steady for a few years. They've been investing in autonomous and electric vehicles, uh, but that's really going to have to pay off in order to pave the way for a strong performance going forward. So management's really going to have to do a lot here. Um, now, if GM was trading at a significant discount to book value or something like that, like some kind of old school Benjamin Graham style valuation, uh, value investment, that might be interesting. But I don't know. I just don't know if they're going to do that. If the market will take the price down to a level that's so stupidly cheap that you can't help but make money on it. Uh, But that's not really what I see right now. Um, Personally, my personal opinion, I I just think that GM has some work to do and they got to get out of the slump. Uh, So we'll see if these self-driving acquisitions, these electric car acquisitions, if they materialize into something real, then that might be something to keep your eye on. Um, But right now, I just don't see it. I just see so many things that are out of favor for General Motors that um, it just doesn't look that interesting to me. So that's what I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stock Stories. Thank you so much for listening and jumping back in with me into the auto industry. So it's, it's been quite a while since we talked about this. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. And if you want to help the show out in any way, first of all, if you're not subscribed to the show, just go ahead and click that subscribe button. 
And that lets the providers know that you value this content. So I really appreciate that. And then if you want to help further, just share the show with a friend. Share the show with someone who you think would benefit from hearing about how companies are rising and falling, hearing about the stories of how sales and cash flow are interplaying with each other and are influencing the investment thesis of a business. If you have friends that are into that kind of thing, then hey, send them here. (laughs) We'll take care of them. So thank you again so much for listening to Stock Stories. And with that, I'll see you next week. information presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.